tonight <coughs> is a shir on, on the, uh, the holiday of Pesach. And what I'd like to do <coughs> is cover Pesach the way most people never understand it. It's certainly a um, great deal of the material you probably will never have heard, which is interesting. It's a paradox because Pesach is such a well-known yontif. It's one of the foundations of all the holidays of the entire Jewish faith. Every time we say Zechel Litzias Mitzrayim, and of course for the remembrance of the fact that we went out of Egypt. But the truth is, the Panemius of Pesach is not really well known. Uh, it's not really understood by most people. Most people think Pesach is basically a historical event that the Yidin, the Jews, <coughs> were enslaved, of course, by the Egyptians. And, uh, of course, the, the Rabboni Shalom sent Moshe Rabbeinu to, of course, rescue the Jews. And uh, during the entire time of trying to convince, of course, in quotes, the, the Egyptians to release the Jews, of course, they had uh, the Esamachus, the Ten Plagues, and then they had Kriyas Yamsuf, and finally they received the Torah at Har Sinai. <coughs> the truth is that <coughs> Pesach looks like it's it's based on a historical event. The truth is it's not. <coughs> the historical event <coughs> is not what makes Pesach what it is, as we will begin to see during this year. The, uh, the essence of Pesach is really the spiritual conflict that was taking place. And we have to understand what was the spiritual conflict. What did the Jews accomplish in Pesach? Why is it so great? Now, toward that end, <coughs> I'd like to ask certain questions. Uh, and what I wanted to do with this kind of a shear is to really make it comprehensive. So what we will, of course, we'll be dealing with is why you have certain of the mitzvahs of Pesach. Why, do we, why are we commanded not to eat from chometz? Why do we have to eat matzah? Why do we have to eat moror? Why do we have four cups of wine, the arbokoises? Why is it we have a fifth cup, of course, and we say that Eliyahu, and that cup is for Eliyahu. Um, why do we have four expressions of redemption in the Torah, when God says to Moshe Rabbeinu that he will take the Jews out, he employs five expressions of gu'ula, of redemption. Of course, the question is why? He should just say, Vigalti and I will redeem them. Why does it say all the other lishenis, the, the all the other expressions? Not only that, we will also begin to understand why was Moshe called Moshe Rabbeinu? Now, many of these questions have answers, but the truth is the primus, the answers, when you understand them, will astound you. And it's not the simple ideas, like, for instance, Moshe Rabbeinu is called Moshe because Basparik drew him from the water. That itself was Hashgoho, in the sense that that's why he had to be named Moshe. So the question is why? You know, we just see the event, and which, which of course illustrates the fact that we're fooled to a great extent by the historical events that cause many of the, seem to cause many of the mitzvahs. And the truth is, of course, is that they don't. The historical events are made to occur in order to bring about those specific uh, laws or halachas. <coughs> Why was there Kriyas Yamsuf? Of course, because the Jews were running away from Egypt. They were right against the sea. 
God split the waters and the Jews came out alive, right? And the waters killed the Egyptians. But why? Why is it that a Kriyas Yamsuf has to occur? What's the premise of Kriyas Yamsuf? Not only that, we find that Jews have to go through four exiles. Bovel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Why isn't Egypt considered a fifth exile? Do you ever notice? They never consider Egypt a fifth exile. Why not? Not only that, why are there four exiles? Why not more? Why not eight or nine? What is the secret of the fact that there's only four? Then we get to the rescue of the Jews. Why are there ten plagues? Why ten? Why these particular ten? How do we understand that? Um, why is Pesach called Zman Cheresenu? And again, of course, we can say that, well, the reason why it's called Zman Cheresenu is because Jews were liberated. They were liberated from Egypt. But the truth is, it's much more profound than that. Why is Pesach called Chag Hamatzis, the holiday of Matzis? As if matzah is the essence or the symbol of the celebration of that holiday, that Yom Tov. Why? Why is matzah that, uh, what does matzah really symbolize? And we will see that when we understand Pesach, we will understand an enormous amount of the task of man. And uh, why Pesach is so great, and also many other events. We'll understand even why there was a marble by Noach. Why was there a marble by Noach? Why were the generations spread out by the Doha Floga, the, the Tower of Babel, uh, Babel, when they wanted to war with God? He spread them out. Why? All these ideas are answered when we understand the essence of Pesach. So therefore, let us begin to delve in, into Pesach and of course find out what its real meaning is. We know, of course, that almost everything in Ashkafa starts with Adam Rishon, right? The first man. Everything seems to work its way back to Adam Rishon. What does Pesach have to do with Adam Rishon? The truth is that Pesach, the essence of Pesach, was the, the essence of it is an attempt by, Jewish, by the Jewish people to restore the Bria, creation to its original state. It was the real, it was actually the third attempt by the Jews to restore creation to uh, its original state. What does that mean? We know that Odin before the Chet had a Yetzirah, but the Yetzirah was external to him. It was in the form of a Nochosh, a snake. And that snake symbolized, of course, the evil inclination, the Eight Sahara. And it was the job of that snake to tempt Adam Rishon to do a sin. <clears throat> now, what happened was, of course, is that Adam, or rather Chava, and then, then Adam afterwards, of course, listened to the Nochosh, the argument of the Nochosh. And basically, the argument of Nochosh was that the Rabbani Shalom is not as all-powerful as he seems, the, the reason why he told Adam not to eat from the tree of good and evil is because he himself derived his awesome powers from that. And Chav, of course, bought that argument, and they both therefore ate from that tree. This was the argument of the Nochash. Now, the Nochash's job really was to tempt 
Odom Horishan, to try to get him and Chava to eat from the tree. This was the job of the Nachash. The job of Odom was to be masik, to comprehend that really God is the source of all creation. That the truth is that besides God, there really is nothing else. Nothing exists like God. And the tree itself is an illusion that is set up, that is created. So Adam should think that there is a power independent of God. And Adam has to realize or figure out that it is God who is the ultimate power of all creation, not any tree. In other words, what Adam has to realize is what's called Yichud Mitzi the absolute or total oneness of God as the supreme being, the source of all creation, therefore the master of all creation. The fact that the Rebbe Shalom is existence, therefore he truly is. And he's the only one that is, in very short ideas. This is what Adam really should have realized, but he didn't. Instead, he asserted his own independence, and of course, and he ate from the tree. Now, the consequences were awesome. But from our perspective, what that did is it changed the task of man. Until now, the task of man was to remove ignorance, where Adam would be masik certain hasogas. There would be an external tempter, Nahosh, a snake, trying to convince him of the uh, limitations of God. And Adam would have to realize who God is. He would have to introduce into his own mind the full measure of the power of God. That's called Ispashtis Kedusha, to spread holiness or the concept of God totally throughout. And this time it manifested itself in himself. He would have to understand who the Rabbanu Shalom is. When the Nachash, of course, talked Adam into doing the Chet, Adam listened uh, to the Nachash. Now, what that meant is there became a new task in creation, a new idea. What kind of idea was that? What the Rabbanu Shalom did is he said this, that because you listened to the Nachash, to the snake, therefore no more will your task be to reject, rather to uh, reject ignorance and instead understand who God is. It's not so simple anymore. Since you listen to this Nochosh, you now have two tasks. One is to destroy the advice itself. You must destroy the Nochosh. You bought his argument, now you must fight the Nochosh. You must destroy that entity called the snake. And then... Once he is destroyed, then you have to understand who God is. Two tasks. So therefore, the task of destroying the Nochash became known as Kfiyasara, to subjugate evil. And the task, of course, of understanding who God is became Hispashtis Kedusha, to proliferate or spread holiness or the concept of God to oneself. <clears throat> therefore, since, since Adam listened to the Nochosh, his task now became to destroy the Nochosh. So what the Rebbeinu did is something very peculiar. He changed the relationship that Adam had with the Nochosh before the Chet. He created a new relationship. Before the Chet, the Nochosh was not dependent on Adam for its existence. It was only dependent on God for its existence. In other words... <clears throat> Whether Adam did a sin or not had nothing to do with the continued existence of the snake. The Rabbanu Shalom maintains all creation and he maintains the existence, of course, of the snake. What the Rabbanu Shalom did is he said, is this. <clears throat> he said that from now on you and the Nochash will vie for existence. How? 
because both of you will derive your existence from one power base. <clears throat> and there's only a certain amount of power. <clears throat> if you do appropriate actions, if Adam does appropriate actions, then what he does is he deprives the Nohosh of his Yonuka or his nourishment. And therefore, Adam gets that nourishment or that, that uh, form that God uses to maintain creation. Adam gets it. It's called a shefa. It's like, it's, like a, it's, like, it's like water coming down to the planet. And there's only a certain amount. And everybody's vying for the certain amount of water coming down. <clears throat> if Adam does the appropriate actions God tells him to, then Adam and man gets the water. If, however, Adam does not do the appropriate actions, then it is the Nochosh that gets the water. And of course, the consequences are that if Adam and his descendants get the water, then the, then the snake dies. And if the snake gets the water, of course, man dies. In other words, man and the snake, man and the sotan, have become rivals for existence. They have become competitors. They therefore hate each other, as all competitors do. And that is the logic of why it says, V'eva oshis between you and the snake. Why would the snake hate man? Why would man hate the snake after the sin? And the answer is because they've both been locked into the same power source. Now you are no more independent of the snake and he is independent of you. Since you listen to his vice, you must destroy him. And the way you destroy the Nochosh, the snake or the Eitzahara, is by <coughs> having access to his nutrient source. And therefore you can impoverish him and destroy him by doing appropriate actions, which of course are mitzvahs. If you do a virus, of course, then the Nochosh survives, he wins, and you die. In a nutshell, the relationship between man and the snake changed. Now we know who the Nochosh is. The Nochosh is really the Yitzhahara. Or he is called the Sitra Achra. The Sitra Achra, of course, means the other side. The other side meaning the forces of evil. <clears throat> we therefore see that the relationship that man has with the Satan changed after the Chet. Before there were two independent beings and the Nochosh was supposed to entice Adam. After the Chet, of course, what happened is that God made the Nochosh and Odom uh, connected to the same power source, and the power source is Kedusha. It's called holiness, because that's what sustains the entire creation. They both were connected to the same power source, and they now vie with each other for the limited amount of resources available. Now, that is the first crucial element to understand in our quest to understand Pesach, that the relationship between man and the Nochosh changed after the Chet. The next thing we have to understand is the structure of evil. That's the next thing we have to understand. What is the structure of evil? Well, what the Rabbani Shalom did is he created this world. Now this world has four levels or four existential states. Each one has a different amount of the manifestation of God in it. In the highest state, in the highest world or existential state, that's called Atsilus, God is manifest through all creation. At that level, if you were at that existential state, you would perceive the Rabbi Shalom purely as He is. In the sense, the fact that everything, you would perceive the fact that God is contained in everything. The next lower existential level is called Bria. 
At that level, you, we have the introduction of entities which see themselves as different from God. And that, at that existential level, the beings there perceive God throughout creation in an incredible revelation. But there is enough hester or concealment of who God is, so therefore they have a self which is different from God. The next existential state, you have what's called Yitzira. And in that state, you have spiritual beings that also are very elevated, and there's an enormous amount of manifestation of the presence of God. But of course, there's much more concealment. And the lower state, of course, of course is this world called El Masiyah, where God is almost absolutely concealed from us. Now, those four states are really... Uh, indicated in the four letters of God's name, Yudke Vavke. Each letter, of course, represents one oilam, one existential state. Now, in order to give man the ability to choose, he gave him free will. Because man, God wants man to earn reward based on his own free will. In other words, man has to be a true cause toward his actions. He has to have been responsible what he does. Therefore, God gave man free will. But even if a person has free will, that's not sufficient. What he must have is a freedom of choice in the sense that he has to have alternatives to choose from. I may be able to choose freely, but if there's only one thing to choose, so what? You know, it's like elections in Russia. You know, everybody can have elections, but there's only one guy on the party line. So obviously, it doesn't say much for what the guy can, you know, what his free will is all about. Therefore, what the Rabbanisham did is he created a complete opposite system to the system of holiness, and that's the system of evil. The system of holiness is called the Sitra de Kedusha, the side of holiness, and that has these four existential levels, which of course have various different degrees of the manifestation of the presence of God. On the other side, the Sitra Achro, which means the other side, God also created four worlds. Each one is a world unto itself. Each one is a different manifestation of evil. In other words, it gets worse and worse as you go higher and higher. So the greatest amount of evil is in the highest world. The next amount of evil is in the next. The lowest amount of evil is the next and so on. And the least amount of evil is in this world. Now, <clears throat> therefore, we see therefore that as compared to the four worlds, existential states where God reveals Himself, there are also four worlds where God is completely concealed, and the concealment becomes worse as you go higher in the world, the Sitra Achron. Each world is called a Klippa or an Ulam. What is a Klippa? A Klippa means a shell. And when you refer to the Sitra Achron, you really refer to Klippas or shells. They're called shells. Why? For several reasons, but one of the most important is that <clears throat> they are the husks. Klippa means husk or shell. And just like a shell of a fruit, it, it is meant to be discarded, right? So therefore the klippa or the evil is meant to be discarded also. That's why they're called klippas, because they're meant to be thrown away or discarded. In any case, the four worlds of the, of the sitra akhra, there are four worlds or four clippers, four ilamas, four worlds. The totality of all the worlds is called a zoyhamor. Zoya means pollution. What it means is that 
after the Chet of Odom Rishon, the Nochosh was given dominion over this world. Why? Because he is given enormous strength as a result of the sins of man. Therefore, he was able to introduce into creation his influence on this world. And Chazal referred to it as Zoyhamor. That he was able to, in, uh, to uh, introduce into the world his influence, and that's called Zoyamah. In other words, he was able to introduce into this world the presence of evil that exists in all the four Olamas of the Sitra Akhra. Therefore, this world sort of has four different kinds of evil, and that's the Zoyamah, the pollution, the influence that the Sultan was able to introduce as a result of the chet, the sin of Odom Rishon. Now, how are these referred to? What are these four worlds? Or what does it mean that there are four states of evil? Okay. Chazal say, in the first beginning of Bracious, it says, Bracious Borolokim Esa Shemaim Vesoros. In the beginning, God created what? Heaven and earth. Now, heaven refers to the Sitra de Kedusha. The whole world of holiness, spiritual. The Ha'orat refers, of course, to the world of the Satan, the world of the Sitra Akhra. That's another meaning, of course, besides its plain meaning, the, the, the Pasuk also has, of course, the hidden meaning. So in the beginning, God created two opposite worlds. One world where God is manifested, and the other world where God is concealed. And then it says, The Ha'orat is Soyu Vavoyu, and the earth was Soyu Vavoyu. Okay, Soyu means tremendous chaos, and Voyu means emptiness. And Rashi says that it's really one thing in the sense that if you were at that world at that time, you would be astonished, Toyu, at the Voyu, at the emptiness of the world. And then it says, and there was darkness over the face of the abyss, the deep waters. And of course, the Spirit of God hovered over these waters. Now, Chazal say, the Medrash says something very interesting. That these four terms, Toyu, Voyu, Choyshech, and Tahoim. Toyu, of course, is astonishment. Voyu is emptiness. Choyshech is darkness. And Tahoim is uh, abyss, a huge expanse of, of ocean. These four terms refer to the four exiles or the four kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Who are they? Bovil, Babylon. Toyu refers to Babylon. Voyu, <coughs> Toyu which means confusion, refers to Bovel. Voyu which means emptiness refers to Poras, Persia. Choshech which is darkness refers to Greece. And Tahoim, the huge expanse, refers to Edoim or Rome. Now, of course, it's a very strange Chazal. What do the four kingdoms, the exiles, have to do with the beginning of Bracious? What does one have to do with the other? Why would the concept of four exiles have to be in the second Pasuk of Bracious already? And the answer is a very profound idea. The truth is that the four exiles are not merely four exiles. The four exiles each exile is really a different existential state of evil. Remember there are four worlds of evil? Each exile represented a different form of evil. 
Well, let's begin to understand that. <clears throat> what are the four forms, existential states of evil? Remember, they are characterized by the absence of God. Evil means the absence of God. Not merely the absence, the absence of God. What, the first state of evil, what that is? When there's a confusion between good and evil. When good and evil reign at the same time, there are no boundaries. It's hard to see when something is good or evil. That's the lowest or the best form of evil. Because that evil has good with it. Except that good and evil can be in one man. Good and evil can be in one nation. And it was good and evil reign in the same place at the same time. That's the lowest state of evil. The easiest state of evil to endure. The second state of evil, which is harder, it's harsher, is when good is absent. There's no more good. There is only evil. But the evil that is, is the absence of good, not an evil per se. In other words, it's not a, an independent alternative system that vies with good as, you know, in its attempt to interpret reality. <clears throat> in other words, there is what's called ignorance or an absence of toiv. That's the second stage of evil. The third stage of evil is when it's no more, it's not only, the, and which of course is much worse, is not only there's an absence of toiv, therefore there is evil, but there is an alternative reality. In other words, the evil there is an entire Weltanschauung of the world interpreted through evil. You see, it's not just an absence of good, but it is an entire understanding of reality as a place of evil. It's an actual alternative system of understanding, which is evil. That's the third level, which of course is much worse, because in that already, you think the evil itself says, I'm a real system. I will explain what happens. It's a real alternative toward good. It's a system, not merely an absence of good. And the fourth stage of evil, which is the worst of all, is the third stage spread throughout. It is the complete proliferation, the pervasiveness of the third, of the third stage, which is the alternative system of reality in terms of, uh, with an evil interpretation, which is completely spread throughout the world. That's the fourth stage. That is the worst, because at least if, if there was that third stage in one place, okay, you can get away from it. But it's all over the place. There is no escape. That is the worst form of evil possible. Got it? Those are the four states of evil. Each one is a concealment in some way of God. The first, again, is, is what? Is confusion because there's a good and evil mixture. The second is ignorance. It's an absence of good. The third is an alternative reality. It's a system where evil actually has an entire rational framework which justifies its existence. And the fourth is the tremendous pervasiveness, the comprehension of that system throughout all creation or the entire world. That is the understanding of the stages of evil. And if you go back, we will see that the symbolic terms embracious refer to these four stages. Toyu means what? Confusion. 
Why is toyu confusion? Because that's what it means. When good and evil uh, reign together, there's a tremendous confusion. What is good and what is evil? This, and that, of course, corresponds... <coughs> well, we'll see in a minute. The next term, of course, is voyu. And what is voyu? Voyu means emptiness. There you are. Absent. Uh, uh, to, to be absent. Where good is absent, it's empty. There is no good. Therefore, there's evil. The fourth stage is called chush. The third stage, I mean, is chushich and darkness. What do you mean darkness? It is a darkness which is an alternative system to light, or chushich. It's a darkness, and the darkness in Bracious was not an absence of light. It was a true positive entity which God created. In other words, it was, a, it was an opposite of light, but not an absence of light. It was a true positive entity in its own right. That is the third existential state of evil, where evil has its own system of understanding things, that it can justify its own existence. And the next one is Tahoim, the abyss, because what does the ocean do? The ocean is dark, but it spreads to three quarters of the earth. So therefore, that's the fourth level of evil. The theory uses this terminology, this symbolic termin term, uh, terminology, to describe the four existential states of evil. Toyu, confusion, voyu, emptiness, chushich, darkness, tohim, the oceanic expanse. To describe these ideas, confusion, uh, ignorance, alternative reality, and the comprehensiveness of that reality, that evil reality, throughout all the entire world. Now, what are these things? These are the four worlds of the Zoyhamah. Right? Very important to remember. These are the four worlds of the Zoyama. These are the four clippers of the Zoyama. That's what they are. And they are four. In other words, the totality of evil which the Sultan tries to inject into this world are these four existential states, four Oilomas. And in this world, that's the way they look. Now, if it is a task. Okay. Now. There is another place which describes um, uh, these ideas, the four worlds of the Klippah. And that is by Yechezkel. In the Maisimer Kova, <coughs> the, the, uh, the account of the Divine Chariot, at the beginning of Ezekiel, Yechezkel, <coughs> we read there that he was standing by a river, <coughs> and all of a sudden he beheld the, the heavens open up. <clears throat> and he saw, and he says that he saw a stormy wind and a dark, huge cloud. Ruach Saora, a stormy wind. Onon Gorl, a gigantic cloud. Kachas, a flaming fire that would spit out its flames. Venoiga, and a brilliance around it. <clears throat> and then he, then, he, then he said, then it says further, of course, that he saw divine spiritual beings and so on. But what are these four things? These four things are the world of the Eclipse. What he saw on his journey upward, which I had discussed in another tape, the whole journey of prophecy, how you actually journey through the Alumas. But what he saw initially <clears throat> is the four worlds of the Eclipse. Ruach Sa'ara. A stormy wind, 
a great cloud, an Eishmis Lakachas, a flaming fire, and of course, Nuga, a brilliance. What does that refer to? Well, Ruach Saora is what? Or well, let's go in, in the bottom. Nuga refers to the first level or first oilum, which is confusion. In other words, there's a light. There's a light, but you know, there is truth and toiv in it, but that can also be darkness. That level of the clipper has good and evil. That's why it's referred to as noige, as a light, because it has the capacity of being a light. There's good and evil there. It is possible to distinguish in that world good. <coughs> the next oilam <coughs> is called Eishmislakachas. Um, that is fire. And that fire, is that fire represents evil with no good. The, the good is absent. That's the second oilum of the Klippah. Onangodl refers to cloud, which of course, when there's a cloud, cloud, when there's a cloud, what does it do? It darkens the earth, right? That refers to the chishech, the darkness, which is the alternative system. And Ruach Sa'ara, stormy wind, what does it do? It carries the clouds all over the earth, right? That refers to the Tahoim. Therefore, we see that <clears throat> we now have um, three ideas about the Olomas, the Klippas itself, or the Zoyhama, the entire existential states of evil. We can say Toyu is one, confusion. In the Torah, it's represented by uh, confusion. In the Torah, what it means, of course, rather, the first state of, 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 of evil is confusion, good and evil. The symbolism to use to describe in the Torah is called Toyu, which means confusion. In Yecheskel, it's referred to as Nega, because it has the capacity to have good in it also. The second idea, the second existential state of evil <coughs> is ignorance, or the uh, absence of good. The Torah refers to it as Voyu, which means emptiness. And Yecheskel, it's referred to as Eish, which means, of course, the fires of evil. The third idea, of course, is, is, is uh, the alternative reality system of evil, and that is called Choshech, darkness, and that is the Onan Godel, great cloud, Necheskel, and then you have the Tahim, the abyss, the expansive ocean, which refers to the comprehensiveness of that evil system throughout, and Necheskel, that's Ruach Sora, the great wind that disperses <coughs> clouds all over the earth. <coughs> now, <coughs> What is the task of a Jew, or act, uh, what is the task now, or, 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 or actually the task of mankind at that time, <clears throat> was to, of course to usurp, to take back all the holiness that the Satan has as a result of the sins of man. Okay, that would be the task of man. So it is the task of man to do what? <clears throat> to actually vie with all these existential states of evil and remain righteous. And in that way, no matter what the Satan threw at him, no matter what existential state he was in, if he would remain righteous, he would take back the Kedusha, the nourishment, the water, the power that the Satan has as a result of sins of man. You see? Therefore, mankind, after Adam, had to remove or destroy the Satan and had to be subjected to the different creepers. That is the task of man, to remove the Zoyama, 
And then, of course, he would be able to hispash this Kedusha, which means, of course, to restore the idea of God to himself. <clears throat> but he would have to war with the Satan and remove these four existential arenas of evil. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this is the beginning. This is the stage of man. What do we see so far? We see, therefore, that the task of man is to remove the Zoyhamor from creation, to remove all the nutrients or the power source, that flow that goes from God to maintain the existence of the Satan, man must channel that away from the Satan and take it for himself. Therefore, man must vie, he must exist in the different existential states of evil and uh, remain righteous and in that way he can remove the power to the Satan and take it for himself. Now, <clears throat> as such, man now has to, of course, endeavor in this direction. What did the world do? Instead of doing righteousness, what happened to the world? It became evil. For ten generations, man sinned. All mankind had the power to vie with the Satan in this way, to remove that power source. For ten generations he sinned. He sinned so much that he gave the Satan unbelievable power. Okay? What happened? Along came the Rabbanish and said, Okay, I will destroy man. And the only one he saved was Noach. What did he destroy man with? A flood. He destroyed him with a flood. That flood symbolized what? It symbolized that mankind had become totally pervaded by evil. That the existential reality that existed in the world was complete evil throughout the entire world. Therefore, man would be destroyed with a symbol, the physical symbol of that state, which was time. Embracious. What is a state that represents complete domination of evil? Time, the abyss. Therefore, man was destroyed with water. And it says, in fact, it says, Niftuchu, Arubas Hashemayim. The windows of heaven were opened. Right? And the wind, and, and, in fact, it says here that in the 600th year of the life of Noach, in the 17th day of the, uh, of the month, Nifku kol ma'inois tohim rabo. Loshen, huh? That the uh, fountains of the great abyss, the oceanic expanse, opened up and the windows of heaven opened up, right? Tohim, it says tohim rabo. What that indicated <coughs> is that man was destroyed with the very symbolic or physical manifestation when evil dominates completely throughout the earth. Now you understand why the marble was water because it symbolized that the Sultan had complete shlita, complete uh, power and control over all creation given to him by the sins of man. Therefore, what destroyed him? That symbol itself, the tahaim, which indicates that level of evil, destroyed man. See, not for nothing did man die by a flood of water, a tahaim. You see, now you begin to see the connection. Okay. God saves Noach, and by the way, the Teva, 
the table in the midst of this ocean represents the Shechina. Because in other words, it's the only thing left. It's the only last surviving Kedusha left that the Sutton did not take. And it is with Noach, because he was righteous. And this little Teva in the entire planet is the only last repository of nourishment for man. Could you imagine that? That's why man was destroyed, because the Sutton had, had all the Anuka. In other words, it wasn't the fact that man sinned so he deserved, deserved to be destroyed. It was the fact that the Sutton demanded his due, which is, I want all the power that man had, so therefore he got that power, so therefore what happens to man when the Sutton takes the power? He dies. That's exactly what happened. And he died with the exact instrument or symbol that represents that power, which of course is the Tohim. So this little teva in the midst of the entire planet, filled with water, represents the last vestige of Kedusha left to mankind. Fortunately, there was enough to save Noach and whatever animals were with him. That's, that's the pneumius of the Misa of um, the, uh, the Marvel. Okay? Fine. Mankind... Mankind continues for another ten generations. <clears throat> What does he do? <coughs> he again sins. But the Roshim now will not destroy him with tohim, with water. Right? Because God promised that he will not destroy man anymore. So what does God do? He spreads him over the face of the earth. Right? He spread him all over. And that's how the beginning of the diversity of languages occurred. Man tried to war with God by build, building a tower. And what did the Roshim do? He saw what they were doing and he spread them throughout the earth. He was Mephaza them. Pizur. He spread them all around. Again, the concept of <clears throat> destruction, of the, w w which we begin to see. <clears throat> what is, the, what is the, 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 uh, the term used in Yecheskel? Ruach Sa'ara. The stormy wind. What does a stormy wind do? It spreads. Winds spread clouds throughout. Right? The essence of the fourth level of existential evil, right, is the fact that it's completely spread out throughout the entire world. Well, that's exactly what God did to man. As a result of the sins of man, he spread man out throughout. In other words, that the power of evil had enough power in it not to destroy man, but to spread him throughout the planet. So the punishment of man was that he was spread throughout the entire planet. No more could he be together. In other words, instead of water, Tahoim, we find the concept of spreading, <coughs> which is what the wind does, by the Doha Flogger. <coughs> we continue. <coughs> the Rebbe now addresses, <coughs> the Rebbe now addresses Avram. <clears throat> now we know, I had mentioned previously, that why did mankind have to be spread out? And we know the answer to that. Or at least I once said it. Because once God said that, okay, now I will give the ability to war with the Sutton over Tavram Avinu, right? Therefore, if all the nations are together, so then it's the nations of the world, it's really mankind, and mankind at that time was only one nation, it's mankind against Avram. Well, if it's Avram against mankind, Avram will never exist. Because that nation will destroy Avram. So what God had to do, 
<coughs> is spread mankind throughout. He created the concept of many nations. So therefore, all of them cannot gang up on Avram anymore. Now they'll fight each other. So Avram and his descendants can survive. In other words, one of the ideas of spreading mankind is that now that the concept of a Masakan, the concept of an individual who would take over the task of removing the Zoyamor, since it's going to be given to one individual, right? What that meant is that they have to be spread out because if they remain together as one nation, they will destroy Avram and his descendants. Therefore, what God did is He spread out all the nations and He created the concept of nations because that's when it was created. Different languages make different nations. So that they would war amongst themselves and not against Avram. And of course, now we see that God wants to re reunite the nations together, right? Because the Mashiach will fight against the entire world. So therefore, God introduced the United Nations, which of course un unites all the nations together. And of course, what exactly is the United Nations doing all the time? Trying to undermine Israel.